Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before it's too late. For in old age, your body no longer serves you so well. Muscles slacken, grip weakens, joints stiffen. The shades are pulled down on the world. You can't come and go at will. Things grind to a halt. The hum of the household fades away. You are no longer wakened by birdsong. Hikes to the mountains are a thing of the past. <laughs> Even a stroll down the road has its terrors. Your hair turns apple blossom white, adorning a fragile and impotent matchstick body. Yes, you're well on your way to eternal rest while your friends make plans for your funeral. Life, lovely while it lasts, is soon over. Life as we know it, precious and beautiful, ends. The body is put back in the same ground it came from. The spirit returns to God, who first breathed it. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. Well, for those of you who have been reading Ecclesiastes 12 all week long, for this past week, those words sound very familiar to you. For those of you who are going to be reading Ecclesiastes 12, those words are going to become very familiar to you. It's the last chapter of Ecclesiastes as we hit week three of our journey through this brief Old Testament book. And I don't know about you, but it feels like we've been in the Ecclesiastes a lot longer than three weeks. There's only so many times I can read about how meaningless life is. I get, I get tired. I get weary of, of some of that meaninglessness. In fact, one of you told me that there's another church in town working through Ecclesiastes in January as well. Only they're, they're going to stick in it for six weeks instead of our three I get tired thinking about six weeks in Ecclesiastes. I'll stick, I'll stick with three. And today is a key day because we're going, to, we're going to make a posture shift that the teacher of Ecclesiastes invites us to make. That's the dramatic change that chapter 12 brings to us today. Right through chapters 1 through 11, the teacher has given us this picture of, of striving. Remember we talked about that last week. Striving. Striving, making a strenuous effort towards a goal. That's the definition of striving, right? Throughout his life, he has made a strenuous effort to get more. To get more wisdom. To get more wealth. More work. More pleasure. He's reaching for more. His posture was was anxious. But I, I know all of you have settled in already and you're settled in for the next 20 minutes, but I want, to, I want you to move a little bit, okay? I want you to, to feel this posture. So put your arms out. Okay, I can see if you're doing it or not, so feel free to do it. And I want you to, to do what he's doing and stretch and reach. Like you're grabbing for more. Like what you want is just out there. Reach further as far as you can. Those fingers, okay, hold it there. Feel your shoulders. Feel your forearms, feel those fingers, feel that tension. That's the, the stress. Don't put your hands down. I saw some of you. 
that's the stress of this anxious striving. Okay, now put your arms down. Oh, does that feel better? Can you feel the relief in your shoulders? That relief is the best you can hope for when you've been anxiously striving. Anxious striving gives you relief. Relief isn't what we're living for, though. Relief is not what life is all about. Relief is simply, is simply not having the worst happen to you, right? It's not living out the best. Relief is simply not having the worst. Whoo, I made it. You get to the end of the day and say, ooh, I made it through another day at work. I didn't get fired. I accomplished what I needed to. Whew. I made it through another day and, and the stock market didn't crash and so I still have a retirement fund there. Oh, good thing. I made it through another day and I had a whole bunch of relationships that I interacted with and I didn't lose any friends. I didn't lose, ooh, good. Relief. It's not like he gained much, he just didn't lose anything. And you know what? Re relief is always temporary, isn't it? You get to the end of the day and say, oh, I made it through the day. You know how long that relief lasts? Until you wake up in the morning and then you start it all again. And I'm back at work again, trying to make it through the day. I'm trying to earn enough. I'm trying to keep the friends. I'm trying to build the, I'm trying, and you get to the end of the day and say, oh, I made it through another day. Until you start again in the morning. Isn't that the picture of meaningless? This weariness, this tiredness that, that the teacher has been teaching us about because he's striving, he's reaching, he's grabbing. It's a cycle of reaching and relief. Not fulfillment, just temporary relief until you strive again. So here at the end, after exploring all of this striving, he invites us to change the posture of our lives. Instead of striving, reaching, grabbing, he invites us to learn how, how to receive instead. To receive is to, to have something delivered or brought to you. Okay, I want you to feel that posture with me. I'm going to have you put your arms out again, only this time not like this. Just hold them in front of you. Go ahead and hold them in front of you. Like you're about to receive a birthday present, a Christmas gift. You notice how this feels so much better? Shoulders don't ache, forearms aren't stiff, fingers are loose. It feels good. Instead of anxious striving, right, ending only in a brief relief, a life characterized by calm receiving is a life that the teacher tells us will bring contentment and fulfillment. It's a life posture that at the end will leave you filled with satisfaction instead of regret. So how, how do we make this posture shift in our lives? How do we move from anxious striving to calm receiving? Well, that's exactly what the teacher reveals at the very end of this book, right? We're going to start at the end of chapter 12. If you wanted to open your Bibles, it's on page 547. You know, for 11 and a half chapters, 
He's been preaching the emptiness and regret of a life lived striving for more wisdom, for more work, more pleasure, more wealth, all under the sun apart from God. And he drives home the lesson that we need to learn in verses 13 and 14. Here's what he says. He says, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. So his reflection on a lifetime of living brings to him two teaching points that he wants us to learn in our lives. How should we live? Remember, this is a question of the book. How do we live in order to avoid the regret that he is ending his life living with? Well, verse 13 tells us. He says two things. You should fear God and keep his commandments. All right, and for those of us who have grown up in the church, who know all the churchy language, we're probably disappointed by those. We were hoping for something a little more practical, right? This whole book has been so practical to life, and now we get these churchy words like fear God and keep his commandments. I was hoping for something a little more, a little more practical than that. If that was your immediate thought, then perhaps it's time to hear these two things from a new perspective. Maybe hear them new again. Because... If we choose to listen to these two things and apply them to our lives, we might just be shocked and maybe even a little bit nervous at how practical and applicable these two things really are to your life and mine. Okay? First thing. First thing we need to do, if you want to get to the end of your life and experience fulfillment and satisfaction and maybe even joy, instead of bitterness and regret, then we need to start by fearing God. And I need to give us a, a new definition of fear. Right? When the teacher calls us to fear God, he's not telling us to be afraid of God. Instead, he's telling us to have a reverential awe of God. That's what it means to fear God. To be afraid of God would be to drive us away from him, right? We, we run away from things that we're afraid of. To have a reverential awe of him moves us towards him. We are drawn towards things that we are in awe of, aren't we? And so the teacher's message to us to start is to be drawn to God in every aspect of our lives. Remember, he tried living under the sun. He tried living life apart from God. That's what brought him all this meaninglessness that echoes throughout all the first 11 chapters, right? To fear God, though, to have this reverential awe of God is to live your life over the sun instead of under the sun. It's to live your life in partnership with God. It's to pay attention to what God is saying and God is doing at all times in every aspect of life. It's to be consciously aware of God's greater purpose for your wealth, for your wisdom, for your pleasure, for, for your work, for every single aspect and moment of your life. Simply put, to fear God is to let God be God 
in your life. It's to, to submit your life to him. Every part. That is where we will find rest. That is where we will find satisfaction in life. Because God knows how your life was designed to be lived. He designed us. He designed you. He created you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows how you're designed to live. That's exactly what the teacher refers to in verse 1 that we'll read in just a few moments. He starts his chapter by saying, remember your creator in the days of your youth. He doesn't say remember God. He doesn't say remember your protector. He says remember your creator. Your creator. No one knows you better than the one who created you. So, so when the creator tells us that money and wealth will never bring the satisfaction that you're searching for, we should probably listen to that. He knows. When the Creator makes it clear that no matter how much we try to be wise, wise enough that we can navigate our own lives and make our own choices and decisions, when He says, you know what, life will always throw you a curveball. Life will always have twists and turns that you can't expect. You better trust me. We should believe that. When the Creator reminds us that neither work nor pleasure will last and that both will end up leaving us empty, we should listen because He knows. He designed us. And yet how often don't we choose to live like we know better than God? Right? So we come on Sundays and with our mouths we profess and we sing that Jesus is Lord of all. But then we have whole sections of our lives, big chunks of our weeks where we don't let him be Lord, where we make ourselves God. We make ourselves Lord. We all do it. Maybe it's Friday nights and Saturday nights where you let God be, be God every other time, but not Friday night, not Saturday night with where you go and how much you drink and what you watch and who you see. Or maybe it's, maybe it's with your money. God can be God everywhere else, but I'm in control of my money with how much I don't give or where I spend it. Maybe it's your sexuality with the who and the when choices that you make both before and after marriage. Maybe it's how you think and talk about people who aren't like you, who are different from you, different race, different gender, different class, different political perspective. I, I don't know where it is for you. Where is that area in your life? Where are you not letting God be God? Where do you know that God would want something different and you're choosing otherwise? And that's not a rhetorical question. I want you to answer that in your own mind, in your own heart. Where is it that you don't fear God? Where you think you know better than him? Where you're living differently than you were designed to live? It doesn't get much more practical and applicable than answering that question in your life. To engage in that kind of honest self-reflection. Psalm 111 tells us that the fear of the Lord, that awe and reverence, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The 
fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God is wisdom on the inside. It's wisdom of the heart. It's wisdom of the mind. And it's that kind of wisdom that will lead you towards less striving, less desperate reaching, and towards more receiving. That will truly fill you instead of leaving you empty. Fear God. Trust that he knows what's best. Be in awe of your creator. Fear God. Wisdom on the inside. And then keep his commandments. That's wisdom on the outside. It's only logical. It only makes sense if you take that next step, right? If we know and believe that God, our creator, knows us the best, and he knows what's best for us, and if we have honestly identified, I hope you did, if you've honestly identified those areas, specific areas of your life where you are ignoring him, where you're behaving like he doesn't know best, like you know best, then we would be fools not to change the way that we're living. We would be wise to obey, and we would be fools to keep on ignoring him, to keep on living out life under the sun after we've heard this warning. Because now we know that God's commands to us God's command to obey him, that isn't God oppressively exhibiting his authority over us, kind of putting us under his thumb and squashing us. No. God doesn't give us some arbitrary set of rules and regulations just to test our willingness to obey them. That's not what God does. That's not how he works. And we so often get that wrong, don't we? Instead, The commands that God gives us are our creator reminding us how we were designed to work. What choices and behaviors and lifestyles will bring fulfillment and satisfaction and joy. God gives us commands to obey, not because he desperately needs something from us, He gives us his commands because he desperately wants something for us. He wants us to get to the end of our lives and be full instead of empty. He wants us to be satisfied instead of bitter. He wants you to experience great joy instead of regret. That's what he wants for you. That's why he commands you to give generously because he knows how greed will harden our hearts towards each other and towards him. That's why he commands us to sexual purity because he knows the joy that we will experience within the bounds of a marriage relationship. That's why he commands us to stand against injustice because he knows that all of society wins when his people stand for justice. That's why he commands us to speak truth because he knows how how lies tear relationships apart. That's why he commands us to love him and to love each other because he knows that that's how his kingdom comes. We get a taste of heaven here on earth when we love. He calls us to obedience because he wants what's best for us. Fear God. Keep his commandments. 
Be wise on the inside by living in partnership with God. And be wise on the outside by following his directions for living. And before we get too focused on obedience and begin to believe that somehow our obedience impresses God, that somehow we win God's favor by being obedient, we need to remember our posture, right? Because it is just as easy to desperately and anxiously strive towards obedience, thinking that the more obedient we are, the more God will love us. The more obedient we are, the more God will give us fulfillment because we've earned it, because we deserve it. We can anxiously strive towards obedience just as much as, as we can anxiously strive towards wisdom and wealth and work and pleasure. We need to remember that all striving will lead us to regret. But it's when we're receiving God's gift of direction for our lives, that's when we will experience God's blessing. So receive what God has to give to you. Set aside the, the striving and the reaching and instead receive God's gift of grace. It's a free gift given through the blood of Jesus Christ, sacrificed on the cross so that you might have forgiveness. Receive it. And freely receive God's gift of eternal life instead of striving for it yourself. It's a free gift given through the death and resurrection of Jesus who paid the ransom for our souls. And set aside the striving and receive God's gift of life right here today for this life, here on this earth. Right, this life you have been given is a free gift from God. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. He gave it. And Jesus specifically spoke his wish for your life. His desires that you might have life and might have it to the full. He wants you to live a full and beautiful life. That comes through the wisdom that does less striving and more receiving. As you live your life this week, pay attention to your posture. Is your life looking more like the striving? Or is your life looking like receiving? And pay attention to it right now, before it's too late. That's the message of the rest of this chapter, right? The first eight verses. Remember what this book is. It's a, it's a desperate message from an old man who's looking back at his past and he can't undo it. And it's a message to all of us who will listen, who still have the time and opportunity to get it right. right? Listen again to, to his passionate plea in verses 1 through 8. He says, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come. And the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain. When the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop. When the grinders cease because they are few and those looking through the windows grow dim. When the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades. When people rise up at the sound of birds but all their songs grow faint. When people are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets. When the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along 
and desire no longer is stirred. Then people go to their eternal home and mourners go about the streets. Remember him before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the well and the wheel broken at the well and the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. He warns us. Verse 2. Verse 2 is a warning that there's a season of life that's coming. And those of you who have lived in farm territory, you know how important the seasons are. There's a dry season in California where we lived, and that dry season is when it's time to plant, and it's time to water, and it's time to grow, and it's active, and it's exciting, and you better get that harvest in before the rainy season comes. So when the rain comes, it's too late. And if you don't have it in by then, you've lost your harvest. There's a rainy season coming. And for those of us who are sitting here today, who are still living and breathing, now is the, is the dry season. Now is the time to plant and to water and to grow. And his message is, go ahead, do that, and get life right now because there's a coming day when it will be too late. When that season is done, when your abilities will be diminished, and, and when all of your great dreams will forever remain wishes, and when your hopes turn into regrets, when you and I will join the teacher at his bitter end if we've ignored his teaching, if we've failed to learn from his life, if we've lived life only under the sun like he did. And it isn't too late for us. It isn't too late for any of us. And I guess even, if, even as I said that, some of you said it's too late for me. Because some of you know what it's like to be towards the end of your life and to have all kinds of regrets. You know what that's like because you're living with them right now. You're looking back at life and you're realizing how much was wasted on meaningless things. And you realize you can't undo what's been done. You can't undo all the foolishness that you see in your past. Please hear this morning the truth that it is not too late. You are not stuck with bitterness. You are not stuck with regret. You know why? Because there is grace. And remember, that grace is not earned. It's not anything you do. You don't have to be good enough. That grace is not earned. That grace is simply received. This posture. So receive his grace. And it will begin to, to turn your mourning into gladness, your sorrow into joy. Have an honest conversation with God with your hands open to receive his grace. Tell him your regrets. Tell him your disappointments. Tell him all your foolishness. He knows it already anyways. Tell him. And you'll receive his grace. And for those of us who are still young, there is time right now. 
There's time to move from striving to receiving. There is time to apply this wisdom to your life. There is time to experience contentment and joy in life instead of emptiness and bitterness. There's time. You know, the teacher ends his book by telling us in verse 11 what he hopes this book will do for us. He gives two suggestions. He says, first of all, maybe you can let this book be a goad in your life. We don't use that word often, goad. What's a goad? A goad is, if you are a farmer, it's a sharp stick that you poke your animals with. When your animals are stuck, they aren't moving the way you want them to move, you poke them with a goad and they get going. When they're walking in the wrong direction, you poke them with a goad and they head in the right direction. It says, maybe what I've taught you here, maybe this book of Ecclesiastes can be your goad to get your life moving in the right direction. Maybe you're stuck. Maybe you're heading in the wrong direction. Could it be that God had you read this book now? It's his way of goading you to change. Turn directions. Get moving towards wisdom instead of folly and foolishness. Start moving towards satisfaction instead of regret. Maybe this book will be your goad. Or maybe he says maybe it will be a nail for you. Because if you've already started heading in the right direction, if you've made this commitment to live in God's wisdom, to, to receive instead of strive, said maybe God had you read Ecclesiastes right now because it's going to be the nail that pounds that commitment to your life again, that solidifies, <laughs> makes it solid for you. Read Ecclesiastes often as a reminder of the commitment you made to keep you on the right path, to hold you firm, to hold you steady as you live for him, as you follow the way of wisdom instead of foolishness. I guess there's one more response we could have to reading the book of Ecclesiastes. We could choose just to ignore everything that we've read. We can choose to continue living under the sun to keep pursuing the ways of the world as we were three weeks ago before we ever read this book. We can choose to continue striving in everything we do. But at least now we know what we're choosing. We're choosing emptiness and regret and bitterness and weariness. We're choosing meaningless. And at least now we know so we won't be surprised when we get to the end of our lives and are disappointed. At least we know. You know maybe Jesus was reading this book too when he looked over at his disciples and he said, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me lives in my wisdom, will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world but forfeit their soul? Some of us might answer that question. Would you pray with me? What good would it be for us to gain the whole world and yet forfeit our soul. Jesus, you know some of us are on that path.
We are striving. Oh, we are striving for the things of this world. We are striving in this life under the sun. Reaching for more. More relief, more pleasure, more fun, more work, more wealth, more, more, more. And it's consuming our days. It's consuming our years. It's consuming all of our passions and desires. It's consuming our dreams and our plans and our futures. And it will leave us empty at the end. Disappointed. Regretful. Teach us, Jesus, now before it's too late. Convince and convict us that it's worth it to live in your wisdom. To trust you for our lives because that's where true contentment lasts. That's where true fulfillment will be found. Give us the courage, Father, to turn away from our foolishness. Our foolishness that says we know better than you. Our foolishness that makes choices that we know you don't approve of. And turn us towards obedience. Obedience not because we have to. Obedience because we want to. Because we trust you. We trust that you are a good, good father. Who has set these rules and regulations because you love us so much and you don't want us to be hurt. You don't want us to get lost. You don't want us to fall and to fail. You want us to be full. Father, help us to trust you and to truly believe you and to show it with the wisdom of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.